everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and we have a very, very <laughs> special guest this time, Dr. Leah Lutz. No, I, it's Leah Lutz. She's with us on the podcast for surprisingly the first time. This is episode 93. That has no significance to Leah Lutz, but you know, <laughs> I don't know why it's taken so long. To be fair, I did. We did record a podcast earlier, but that was right before I moved from Santa Cruz to San Diego. So I happened to lose a memory card in the move, which had our audio on there. And uh, I take responsibility for it. So I'm sorry, Lee, but thank you for joining us. What's going on? Not much. I mean, guess what? I'm at home. So yeah. that's how exciting things are right now. Quarantine 2020. Yes. Uh, you're... I don't know what day it is for like, I know what day of the, it's March 26th, but I don't know what day it is of the quarantine. Cause I don't know when you were officially supposed to start counting. Like, right. Well, I started before you did as well. My County beat uh, yours. So yeah, to be fair, I don't think we're shelter in place yet in oh, San Diego County. Yeah. So then I'm worse off than you are. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely more quarantined. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so this is, you know, one of those COVID-19 podcasts. We're just, we're, this isn't like you're going to learn a whole bunch about some scientific topic, but that, that, hey, don't turn, don't adjust the dial. We're going to talk about, in my estimation, an even more important topic in addition to all the wonderful things that Leah Lutz has to offer and some history so you get to know her better. We're going to talk about a bunch of cooking stuff. And look, if there's one skill outside the gym that I could impart on any, to anyone it would be how to cook, how to shop for groceries, how to prepare food for yourself, because this nutritional adherence gig is tough, even when you have those skills. And if you don't have those skills, I'd say it's impossible, uh, unless you have more dollars and cents and you could just pay somebody to do it. But hey, that's not everybody. So uh, before we pop into this, Leah, how's your training going? Like, oh, what's going on? So, I mean, I I feel a little bad about talking about that right now, honestly. I mean, you just got to check your, your home gym privilege. (laughs) I do. I mean, I was messing around with some people on the Facebook group about how, you know, you feel like you are extremely like, you're like the elite of the elite now. And then I started saying, you know, people were talking about what they were going to post. And I said, well, I'm going to post a video of myself doing box squats with chains on Aleiko equipment. And I don't know, we were trying to think of everything privilege that I could stick on there. But yeah. So my training is going really well. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not only because I'm training, but I'm still honestly like oddly in this weird place of being really stoked with how well it's going, but also kind of a little bit flabbergasted as to why that is, but I'm not going to complain. So yeah. yeah. I mean, the way I, the way I view your programming, you know, recently, particularly before your last meet and even actually dating all the way back to before nationals in 2019 is that we found a few things that quote unquote worked a little bit better than some other things we'd been trying. And so in, in this case, it was, it's not just as simple as saying, Oh, we're doing more volume right. or more intensity. It, it really was a blend of everything, not only exercise selection, uh, we actually ended up lowering some of the average intensity on some exercises that you were doing and actually decreasing the volume a little bit uh, on some of the accessory movements, but increasing the volume on the competition lifts uh, basically to kind of eliminate some of this week to week variance that you had in performance. The idea was like sometimes your comp squat or comp deadlift would be up and then the next week it would be down yeah. and it, you know, it could go back and forth. And, you know, for some folks, it's not a big deal. It's like, eh, you know, you take, you take what you take, you take what you get and go from there. But I think when you get close to a meet, it's hard to kind of square that circle right. because you start thinking about it a little too much. So if you can make it a little more consistent, make some progress, steady progress, I think that helps a lot of folks. And, uh, yeah, so we found some things and then we kind of have been riding that wave, uh, ever since. And it's been so, a really long one too. Like, I don't know, you say a long wave, but yeah, it's lasted. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. So the multiple cycles we ran have, have kind of like built upon that. And so, you know, I mean, it's a terrible time to have a pandemic, you know, if there ever was one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, and this, and I don't mean to make light of the situation. It's obviously, uh, you know, serious and, and tragic and whatnot, but it'd be cool if uh, we knew what was coming down the pike from a, a meat situation, even though that's utterly insignificant compared to everything else that's going on. But, right. you know, this is a, this is the barbell medicine, this is the barbell medicine podcast, not the CDC or WHO podcast. So we can, uh, we can talk training here. Exactly. That's good though. Right. And so I think everybody needs a little bit of conversation. That's not coronavirus. So. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and so, you know, in contrast to Leah's training going great, <laughs> my training is, uh, you know, it's much different. So my meet got canceled. It was supposed to be on April 11th and you know, it's funny. So it was actually supposed to be at Coachella and they canceled Coachella a long time ago, right? Yes. So, but we just got an official email from the meat directors like last week, like, oh, we've canceled the meat. It's like, well, no, yeah, <laughs> duh, of course you did. But the interesting thing is they're trying to schedule it like pretty soon, which it, they're going to have oh, to cancel wow. it again. Yeah. I know. It's like, and you can't just like say, yeah, we're going to have it. I think anytime you have to reschedule a meet, it's really hard to push it back anything less than like 12 or 16 weeks from either the previous date or like when things in this case are like quote unquote normal again, because how are people going to train? I agree. Yeah. You're going to have a lot of people really stressed out if they can't get in what's traditionally seen as a pretty solid training block before their meet. So. Right. Right. Otherwise you're just, you're just going to have fun, which is fine. That's a, that's the way to do it. But, uh, so today my workout was, I did three Oh three tempo, uh, Bulgarian split squats with, I had a weighted vest on, so that was 20 pounds. Okay. And then I had uh, 45, no, 60-pound dumbbells in each hand. Um, and so I did a set of 12. That was my first set, and that was about at nine. And then, <laughs> and then I took the weighted vest off. For my second set, I did another set of – I did 10, which was also at nine. And then my third set was also at nine, and I backed it down to 55 pounds. Um, but, you know – People are thinking, oh, you can't do this workout at home, especially if you're, you know, are a strong, quote unquote, person. Right. Uh, you sure can. And so if I didn't have any equipment, I think I would either make the deficit bigger, for example, to make the range of motion longer. I would make the tempo slower or something like that. Or uh, I would try to, and uh, I would probably use a backpack for load, you know, for example. Yeah. Um, always to kind of get my, so you mean, get me. Yeah. You do that instead of just doing like a hundred reps. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you have two choices. So like if you're in the middle of a set and you realize you're not going to get anywhere close to failure, which was the idea to like get close to muscular failure, right. Which gives you this big, you know, motor unit recruitment stimulus and ultimately a nice little hypertrophy stimulus. Um, no matter if it's five reps or 30 reps, we know that we get similar hypertrophy outcomes from either. Um, the strength outcomes are different because they're two different contexts, but that's besides the point. Um, you have two options in the middle of a set. So let's say you're rep 10 and you're like, this is going to be RP zero. Well, you could just keep going <laughs> right. and, and take it and take it to failure, you know, which might be, you know, 35, 45, 55 reps, or you could abort the set and say, I need to pick a different exercise that gets me closer to failure. There's two ways, you know, that's really your yeah. two options. My preference is that if you're going to be over 30 reps, uh, is to probably switch the exercise just because I think once you start getting those really high rep ranges, um, that sort of similar hypertrophy outcome that you get from, going close to muscular failure at, for example, like 25 reps and five reps, you get that is similar. But when you get over 30 reps, I think it starts to fall off and change a little bit, especially because I think it's usually not muscular failure that you're getting close to. It's like a cardiorespiratory kind of failure. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, is one thing, but, um, you know, (laughs) so that's just, I I pulled sumo deadlifts for eight, did touch (laughs) and go bench for sixes. Yeah. 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 Pendele rows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I did so some, not bad. I did um, I did some weighted pull ups. <laughs> oh, see, uh, you love those. Yeah. I really hate them. I, <laughs> I hate know. them so much. Just because, and so people are like, "You don't like them?" I'm like, "Well, I just think like you know, from a hypertrophy standpoint, probably not the best use for, yeah. of like your your sort of available resources, training resources. Like the stimulus to fatigue ratio is not really favorable. And you'd rather do something like a seated row or like a lat pull down or, you know, dumbbell row or something, which you can get a bunch of volume in with less overall fatigue, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Exactly. And then, uh, so I did some weighted pull-ups and then, uh, what I do deficit, uh, push-ups with the weighted vest on. 
and some ad wheel rollouts. And I'm telling you, I like, I, it's so funny because <laughs> I think this has been going around. It's like, people are like, I made this home workout and I got sore afterwards. Like, yeah, dude, there's a lot more volume <laughs> than you expect. So, yes. but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll make it through and see how long we got to do this for, but I'm not concerned. Um, you know, just, if you're listening to this, so this is episode 93, the next episode, no, either the next episode or the episode after this is going to be our barbell medicine research review episode. And we're t- talking a lot about, uh, uh, sort of muscle memory, quote unquote, and like hypertrophy with body weight exercises, you know, just because this is all on, every, on everybody's mind. So there's some good evidence that you can actually, um, you have a longer time to detrain than you think. So the actual fitness adaptations that you get from resistance training take a longer time to generate uh, than they uh, take a long time to generate and also a long time to like decay. As long as you're not talking about like high level, you know, one RM absolute performance stuff, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, anyway, we'll talk about it later. That's not, a, that's not the Leo Lutz podcast. <laughs> Just wanted to kind of give us everybody an update on the training stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of training though, like how did you even get here? It's 2020 <laughs> now. You and I have been working together for, I think it's eight years now. I think so. But like, but you were lifting before that. Like what, what the heck, how'd you get into this? How'd you get here? Tell us about your lifting history. Yeah. So if we've been working together about eight years, it's probably about 10 years ago that I first tried lifting and that was in the world of CrossFit. And, um, I had had several attempts to go to a gym and do something met with a personal trainer at one every now and then, and nothing was very successful. Got talked into doing CrossFit. Um, not surprisingly now looking back, um, I, really loved all the barbell work that we did. And at the time, uh, the gym I was at, they were on a big strength bias, uh, programming perspective. And so we were doing three by five squats. We were deadlifting regularly pressing, uh, no bench press, but uh, it's not functional. Exactly. Right. Or they just didn't have enough benches, you know, I'm not really sure. One of those. Yeah. And, uh, so I discovered that I was a pretty great, uh, squatter early on, but, uh, definitely loved the world of CrossFit. It was very difficult though. I say that I loved the world of CrossFit after the initial stress. Um, at the point that I joined CrossFit, I think I was probably about 255 ish pounds. Um, it was uncomfortable in every way. Uh, I was terrified of going in, but I was, I ended up being in a great community. People who really cared, um, were 100% there for me. And, uh, so I stuck with it. They helped me figure out a lot of things just as far as making this a habit, adapting it to what I could do. Um, but time went on. I had some in an injury surgery on my rotator cuff. Things got painful. I still had more weight I wanted to lose. And that's when you and I met online. And initially, so that was uh, just a couple months after my rotator cuff surgery, I was again, or at that point, still over 200 pounds. And so my big goal was still losing weight. But I also knew that training of some kind was a really important part of my life at that point. And I was really frustrated with what I was going to do and how that was going to work. And that's when things changed and I became not right away, but eventually I became a power lifter after I let you talk <laughs> me into a meet <laughs> yeah. after months of being talked into a meet. Yeah. Leah, Leah swiped right on fitness. So I, <laughs> I, I, to this day, I still don't actually know. And I, I still haven't heard a good story for like how you came across me because 2012 was still really new. Like I was still really new with respect to like doing the online co- yeah. coaching stuff when barbell medicine was, you know, it was the thing, but it wasn't like it was big, really as big as it is. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so it was, uh, so I had worked for CrossFit media and so that's how I met Tom Campitelli ah. and I knew that I didn't know a lot about him at that point, but I did know that he was definitely into barbell training. And so that kind of led me into the world of, you know, what he was doing. And I came across you on the old nutrition board. And so I was like, here we go. 
Oh yeah. Yep. So so I the vivid memory that I have about this is so, uh, back then when I had much less responsibilities with respect to barbell medicine. Uh, very frequently, I would get on the phone with yes. folks, it, particularly if they didn't know who I was, because I was like, "Hey, you know, I don't necessarily want you to spend this money." if you don't know who I am, because I wasn't a lot about me on the internet at that time. Now, right. you know, which is scary <laughs> and you can just find everything you want about me on the internet. It's all yes. there. Um, in any case. So I remember I was pacing around the parking lot <laughs> at the retirement home that I lived in at the time, just talking to you for probably 45 minutes. But yep. um, yeah. So just so people realize you had just come off this rotator, sur- rotator cuff surgery, you had a slap tear. Yeah. Um, so effectively benching and squatting regularly quote unquote with a barbell was out at the time. I'm pretty sure the first block that I wrote for you, you were safety squat, safety squat bar squatting. And I think you were either pressing like a PVC pipe exactly, and and benching like no, you know, no offense to all the pink dumbbells in the world, but the pink dumbbells. Yeah. No, I think it was literally the five pound dumbbells. Yeah. Yeah. We had to start somewhere though. And I think we, you know, eventually worked up to that and, um, it was a few months before you were squatting. Yes. And then I think you benched a barbell. <laughs> and then from there, you know, things things took off. Yeah. I, your first your first meet though had to be 2013, right? I think so. And I was terrified. Yeah, 2013 sounds right. Yeah. It's in so Santa you had, Clara. Yeah, because you had, you know, got down, you were in like the uh, low 170s yeah. or something like that. And I was like, hey, you know. <laughs> what might push you over the edge give and as far as this weight loss thing. And then also give you a, a, a some, a reason to have like meaning in your training is to sign up for a meet. Yeah. So you signed up, it was a USPA meet, yes. I believe. Yep. Yeah. The 165 class. Yes. Good old 24 and, uh, hour weigh in helped me. Yeah. Well, you were fine. <laughs> yep. And then, um, did you win the first meet that you did? I, I did win my class. Yep. so So, like people ask and I say well I mean honestly when you do your first meet and you realize oh that went kind of well I mean it's not there there weren't that many women competing but at the same time I had a really really good time people were insanely supportive I went I had nothing you know I had no idea what was going on but everybody was super helpful and then yeah um even back then, I think it's it's probably fair to say I had a pretty strong squat. So, you know, you kind of realize that too when you're in a competition. You're like, oh, fun. Yeah. 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 And so you crushed it. And then now you're Leah, Leah the powerlifter. <laughs> right? Yeah. No one who knew me 10 years ago can believe this. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so 2013 was your first meet. And then when was your first, uh, the first IPF worlds that you went to? Oh, that was Colleen. Was that in 16, 16 or 17? I think it was 16. 16 And then Minsk in 17. Yeah. That sounds right. So pretty rapid rise through the, the ranks. Pretty fun. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) All right. So besides, you know, dominating, you know, your division in powerlifting, you know, you've also became a part of barbell medicine, uh, more formally. I, I forget. Did you start working? Uh, was it 2013, 14? I think it was 2013. It was behind the, I started doing behind the scenes admin work pretty soon. I remember talking you into giving me the job. <laughs> uh, well, now if hindsight was 2020, I would have, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You would have hired me sooner and yeah, given yeah, me, yeah, no. but I was probably. still teaching at the time too. So it was very part-time. Yeah. Yep. And so now what are, what do you do with barbell medicine? So I'm full-time. I coach, I have a great crew of one-on-one clients. I handle a pretty fun amount of the administrative work for barbell medicine and I run the women's online group programming and work yeah, at the seminars. And basically serve as a manager for some of the other uh, contractors that we have yeah. doing other things. Yeah. So. I've been around for a while, so I kind of know a lot of the ins and outs of what we do. So I get to I get to help with a lot of things, which is pretty fun. Yep. Yeah, I agree. We're lucky to have you. Thank I'm you. lucky to have you. Thank you. 
All right. So we're 20 minutes in. Now everybody knows how you got here. Yes. But the topic, again, that we're going to cover in some depth is cooking, what do. But you went to culinary school. I this did. isn't just like you just like to cook and like, you know, we're going to talk about how much you like to cook. Like you actually went to culinary school. What was that like? Yes. So that was, oh man, oh, that was a little over 20 years ago now. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I absolutely loved cooking. I loved baking in particular. And so a school opened up in Los Altos. And that was just immediately what I really wanted to do. And it worked out schedule-wise, money-wise, everything. So I was able to do it. And I went into this program with the intention of studying baking and pastry. Because that at that time, that was my real love. And uh, But everybody started out in the same basic skills program and all of that. And after, it couldn't have been more than a couple of months, I really realized that I was loving the hotline. I was loving the cooking side of things more than I ever thought. And so dove a lot more into that side of cooking school and uh, just ate it up. I was living and breathing (laughs) cooking school at that point um, down to, uh, it was really, it was the only thing I did at that point. I was not working. um, And so I was working on things after, after class every day, I would be up all hours of the night sometimes. And I still loved bread and baking and pastry. And I remember there were so many times when I would be working on breads or projects and things like that. And I would just be sleeping on the couch, setting my timer or my alarm so that I could time things as exactly as possible and get them done before class the next day. So yeah, it was, it was crazy, but it was worth it. I learned a ton Um, I was an avid home chef and that experience, even though after I was done, I decided that this was not going to be my career. Um, I learned so much more about the, dare I say the nuances of cooking, um, (laughs) but moving from a home chef that was, had appreciation for what was going on, but was really bound by what, what I was reading in a recipe or seeing in a book, no matter how much I was trying to learn. Uh, cooking school very quickly and at times very harshly moved me from that to understanding the principles of cooking and baking and thinking about what it was that was happening, what I wanted from this, and what I was going to be giving to others with this end product. And at times I say harshly because, you know, the cooking world can be a little intense and uh, perfectionist, but it taught me a lot. So I can't complain. And you had you had this interest in baking, right? Yes. Like particularly like desserts or, what, or yes. what have you. All right. So here's the here's the test question. Yes. What is the difference between a scone and a biscuit? Oh, I would say the big difference would be well, the big difference would be the sweetness, number one, for sure. But then there's probably a difference in the fat. I don't know yeah. that for sure, but I mean, I don't know what the difference, but there's a difference in how you would fold in the fat for sure. And I think there would have to be more fat in the scone, but. Yeah. Scone, scones have more fat, more egg. And they have eggs in there too. Yes. And uh, they end up being like flakier. And you like scones? Just, no, I just have oh, yeah. been watching a lot. No, I, I mean, not particularly. <laughs> I've just been watching a lot of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And there's oh, been a nice. whole like <laughs> thing about yes, sc- yes, sco- yes. scones. scones. And, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Speak. I mean, that's, I agree. Scones are usually a little too dry. Speaking of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know that I prefer a dry scone over a biscuit <laughs> or a muffin, but you know. Yeah. If I was going to choose one, I would actually choose a well-made biscuit. A fluffy biscuit is... Ooh. Amazing. So, yep. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't fit a lot of people's macros, no. but uh, I'm not sure I remember the last time I had a fluffy biscuit, so Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's probably when I had an egg McMuffin, but that's not really <laughs> No, it doesn't count. So. <laughs> All right. So, the people want to know. Yes. What is the worst thing you ever had to cook? And this doesn't have to be like the worst tasting thing necessarily. Oh. It could be the hardest thing, but it like either way it could be the worst tasting or the hardest or whatever made it the worst. What was the worst thing you've ever actually had to cook? Um, the worst might be making pate. 
Um, oh. Yeah. That well, might, you know I'm not probably, a fan of mushrooms. That's so. probably the worst. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds gross. Yeah. It is very difficult for me to like physically cook lamb, but making pate was probably the worst. But I just have such a hard time with the smell of lamb. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I did make some uh, lamb shanks like uh, with uh, – I basically just uh, braised them okay. and a bunch of red wine. And like the house smelled amazing, but it's still gross because it's lamb. <laughs> so not a fan. Right, right. Yeah. The, wor- the worst thing I've ever made I think is when I made that rye bread – for that, yeah. those um, uh, uh, the sandwiches that, yeah. that I, the the Rubens the so the I made my own pastrami right and right. you know that that cured that smoked it came out great and I was like I gotta make some rye bread yes that was before I had a KitchenAid so oh like, yeah getting a, a, a making your own rye bread like making the dough kneading it together like that stuff is so dense there's so much flour and so little water you're just like how how does this come together i don't understand (laughs) right people don't understand but like even now if i'm on a big baking spree yeah the pump the the pump is real it's very real i know in fact derek and i were just talking about that this morning because he's learning how to knead his bread enough and i was like you got to look at it as like steady state kneading just don't give up yeah. Yeah. If you think you've needed it long enough, keep going. Right. That's <laughs> exactly. All right. And conversely, what was the favorite thing, your favorite thing you ever had to cook? So my, the favorite thing that I've ever had to cook or eat is always one of my bo- most difficult questions, like hands down. Um, I mean, there've been, I would say there've been a handful of like meals that I've made for like a small group of people that honestly are probably my favorite because I love cooking so much that I will cook by myself and for myself or, you know, not have any intended end to that project. But Mm -hmm. to be able to put something together where the entire meal is what I consider perfect or close to perfect and everyone at that table is happy and thrilled like that to me is fantastic. So there've been a couple of meals that, you know, I can think of that are like that where it's not any one particular part, but it's everything. Um, and then I guess for as like an accomplishment, uh, probably one of the wedding cakes that I made. Cause that's just probably oh, one of the most lot. stressful things. Yeah. Days yeah. and hours and, I wasn't super like I didn't have a lot of practice in it before people I started doing it for people. So it, I was just like, sure, I can do this. No problem. But it's, it's hard. Uh, regrets. <laughs> regrets. And regrets. you're in constant stress that it's going to fall apart. So yes. yeah. I think the my favorite thing that I've ever made, which is funny because it's also my the worst thing, the least favorite thing that I ever made was that uh, the Reuben sandwich. Oh, yeah. I mean, because – I, you tasted it. Yeah. In fact, I don't, it wasn't, I don't think it was until then that I would have ever contemplated ordering a Reuben ever. I've never <laughs> ordered one. And then yeah. after that, I was like, actually, this is so good that now I'm like, mm, next time I go to New York City, I am 100% buying a Reuben from a deli. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably maybe the tastiest, like, total meal thing that I ever have created and uh, totally worth it. But, my favorite thing to cook is probably brisket. Yeah. Just because <laughs> you do love that. <laughs> it's either it's either brisket. So there's a reason why I like making brisket. One, because it's tasty, yeah. you know? And just the everything about it. You get the bark, you get a little crunch, and then it's, you know, the meaty flavor. It's just it's fan- and the smokiness, it's it's great. But, you know, and I'm gonna say this, and she's not gonna hear it. <laughs> My grandma's brisket was terrible. Like Rosalie used to make this brisket and and then my dad inherited this recipe and it's terrible. I don't know. It's just, it's gross. It's slimy and yeah. like not, it's just honestly now thinking back, like there was no crust on it. There's no. I was going to say baked. it was probably just roasted forever in a covered yes. pan with like yes. some sort of tomato or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. And you know, it's still meat, which is, can be tasty and right. you know, whatever. And, but 
yeah, I don't know why. It just it was so gross. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm so proud of myself for like ditching the family recipe and now <laughs> figuring out how to make a good brisket. I feel Changing like, the Feigenbaum story here. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. the challah bread I made. One of the two. Yes. Anyway. My All most right. like therapeutic thing is probably cookies. Just oh, yeah. because I love, I do love, like when I'm just like, I got to do something to feel better. Sometimes it's cookies. Yep. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So amidst all this cooking stuff, like, do you find that your clients, cause you work with a bunch of clients on programming or nutrition or both Yes. for as far as your clients that you're working with, uh, on changing their nutritional, uh, habits, do you find that cooking like lack of knowledge about how to do it or is like a, is a big thing for them? Do you find that often? I do. Uh, surprisingly, I, I wasn't expecting it when I first started doing this and, um, yeah. And so I've learned a lot about what my food experience was compared to what many other people's food experiences actually is. And, uh, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a a pretty marked lack of cooking skill. Um, I have a lot of interaction on Instagram with people who aren't sure how to cook what I consider to be really basic things. But then you realize if they've never had the need to do it or maybe, and and I guess what really opened my eyes was realizing that it's not even, it's not that they don't want to, but if you're new to it and you don't have any sort of input or help, you realize how overwhelming the world of food and cooking is, you know, cause we can tell someone just go look it up, find something online. Well, e- that's like information overload yep. and they don't necessarily know where to start. Um, you can even go to the grocery store and be 100% overwhelmed with what do I buy? Where do I go? It, this could take me hours. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do. So yeah, I can, I started out kind of thinking all the information is there. So surely people must know how to do it. And you realize the information is there, but sometimes there's just too much. People don't know where to start. And then other times they're at a point in life where their life is so busy that they're not going to go through the same kind of things I did, of course, where my life was devoted for a time to learning how to cook. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you point out a a really uh, important sort of distinction between people that you can actually kind of help here and then people who you probably wouldn't start or wouldn't address this issue. So you mentioned that people who want to learn how to cook, who want to learn how to, how to do this. Um, at that point you need to provide that person with resources and skills and, and build upon those over time to give them all these different strategies to change their behavior, right? Which is the nutritional strategy, nutritional, uh, sort of uh, pattern that they're, they're falling into. You can't really convince somebody <laughs> to want to learn how to cook no. uh, by just telling them it'd be good for you, <laughs> you know, or yeah. like yeah. it'll improve your social life or whatever. It's really, it's got to be, you know, if, if somebody's not really interested in doing it, you can't really force it upon them. You can, you know, start a conversation, ask them why, you know, why, uh, you know, would you be interested in this? And they say, no, you ask them why, um, what sort of things would be preventing them from doing this? And they might say, you know, something that you might not expect. Like, actually, we don't even have a, a range in right. our, the place that we're living or, or like I, you know, don't want to run up the, uh, heating the, you know, gas bill, or I don't want to have all these dishes. Cause then I got to run the dishwasher. I got to run the water to clean all these dishes, something, whatever. Or, right. I, I or work, like I, I said, like I remember a conversation where a guy was just like, I don't know what to buy at the grocery store. So yeah, no, exactly. You got to back up. Yeah. You got to back up. Yeah. yeah. Cause there's just stuff that's preventing them. So effectively with all behavioral change, the reason why people don't move onto different, the next phase right of their behavioral change process is a perception that the cons the negatives outweigh the pros the benefits and so it's like if you're trying to say trying to get somebody to want to learn how to cook because that would be a good strategy a good skill a good uh for them to have in place for long-term adherence to a healthy dietary pattern yeah and they don't know how to go grocery shopping well, they're, you know, they're, we're a couple steps behind already. You know, they, they just, they view this as like, well, I can't really cook because I don't know what I'm going to buy at the store. And so of course I don't want to just start like, you know, spending all this extra money and stuff <laughs> that I don't even know what to do. Right. Um, so what do you, for coaches listening to this? Cause I think 
Austin and I were talking about this earlier, like you you can't convince people to want to start exercising who have no interest in doing it on their own. Right. That's a, that's a different, a whole different problem. Same thing with cooking and and changing people's diets. Um, That's got to, yeah, that's, that's not really going to be our role at barbell medicine. People aren't just going to see our stuff, our content and be like, yeah, now I want to start exercising. (laughs) that's probably it's probably not it you know um but you know they might be lacking education or knowledge about where to start uh or um lacking in resources for how to uh, to obtain that knowledge or get help whatever so we can help that and then in addition we can help other professionals uh who are actually going to counsel these folks and actually do the motivational interview in one-on-one and so like COVID-19 we can infect the professionals and sort of get them to transfer this and it multiply and amplify uh, and help the community. So for the coaches uh, that are listening to this, what are some strategies that you use to address the grocery problem? Um, Do you do stuff like you write a grocery list or do you get, make a video of you like buying stuff? Like what do you, what's your particular strategy here? So good question. Um, I, over time, have tried to I, I lean more towards the make a list or provide shopping guidelines. And I have not yet ventured into making a video of myself grocery shopping. That sounds really daunting. Actually, I take that back. Uh-huh. I did start taking some video in Trader Joe's, and then I found out that at least where I am, they have a store policy against that. So I couldn't do that. You can't do it. All right. Yeah. But <clears throat> anyway, um, So I do try to create some shopping strategies for someone who needs to start there. And there's a lot of different parts to it, depending on where they're at. But in, you know, to your point, generally we're dealing with someone who has an interest in healthy behaviors, right? So they recognize that some things have to change and they may or may not have some awareness with some, you know, basic health recommendations and guidelines, but like, let's just take like eating fruits and vegetables, whole grains, all those good things, right? We can say those all the time, but that can still be an unknown for people because people are, are, are frozen with like, but what's a serving of a fruit and vegetable? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, should I buy, does it make any difference if I buy fresh or canned or frozen? And then I don't know what to do with it. If I do buy it, I don't know if I like any of it. So there's still so much that has to go into this conversation, this motivational interviewing where you have to have, find out where this person is at. But then I try to make it as simple as possible and kind of like, I guess, recognize there's tons of information out there and a lot of it might be really helpful, like years down the road for someone. But right now I need to help them to pr- increase their ability to intake healthy food. So for sure. that's, you're just trying to, you're trying yeah. to meet them where they're at. Exactly. Basically. So yeah. that's, you know, I mean, I just, there's some striking conversations, but you know, when someone goes in and realizes that they never knew before they went to whole foods and did grocery shopping, that there were that many different types of potato like things to choose from. Right. And mm-hmm. so you sometimes they don't know what to do. So I try to be pretty clear. Here are some things you could buy. Here are some vegetables. I want you to choose one of these vegetables this week to try. And this is how I suggest you make it. I've done that with many clients. Um, and then next yeah. week we're going to do two. And here's another way that you can cook it, or you can eat this one raw and you can cook. We're going to, here's another vegetable and you can cook it the exact same way you did last week's vegetable. So you don't even have to learn a new skill. You don't have to do something different with it. Um, but it's going to taste different. And then I try to, because of my love for cooking and food, kind of like behind the scenes, I'm trying to help them to enjoy that whole process. And so I do try to be pretty specific with what kind of things could they eat seasonally that are I think are going to taste a lot better. I think they're going to enjoy them a lot more. So I don't, someone who hates tomatoes, I don't want, I'm not going to try to get them to try it in the winter, for example. Sure. I want them to try it when they're going to taste their best. So I've got all these different angles that I try to come at from increasing their healthy food intake. Yeah. It sounds like you're trying to stack 
behavioral change on top of each other. So for yeah. instance, one vegetable at a time, yes. you know, similar cooking techniques, stack those things together and then build upon them. And that it also sounds like you're using a lot of uh, different, like these are just fundamentals of teaching. So basically having people act in, engage in this active learning process where they're asking questions, you're sort of facilitating their learning process rather than just giving them the information saying, read this, do this, you know, and, right. and <laughs> let yeah. me know if anything goes wrong. It's more so like, like when I do this, for example, um, I ask them, you know, Hey, what, what are some vegetables that you normally eat? What are some vegetables you normally don't eat? And I just, I, I'm basically trying to assess, does this person know, yes. for example, a bunch of diff- uh, many different vegetables they can choose from and then go through, you know, what are s- some seasonal vegetables uh, that are in right now, uh, especially for addressing cost, for example, yes, because um, they tend to be cheaper. It's, it's, so there's just a difference. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people who don't have either experience in teaching folks or are kind of looking at this problem as just a lack of knowledge, like that's what this is, yeah. might you're tr- they're trying to do good things and we applaud you. Like, look, we need more people in the trenches. If you're a trainer, you're just gonna, you're starting to train or you're thinking about, you know, this is what you want to do. Like, that's great. We need more. Okay. We need yes. more of you guys. We need yeah. more PT. We need more Kairos. We need whatever. We need the whole deal. Uh, provided you're going to be an evidence-based practitioner. We need all of you guys. <laughs> right. Um, but the main things you need to do are engage in this sort of, again, not only the motivational interviewing, but the active learning process where you're having the person engage themselves in this dynamic conversation that you're having. So it's not just you're providing information, you're telling them what to do and they go do it. Right. It's it's getting them to kind of come up with the behavior, come up with the information, come up with the answer, and you're guiding them as a subject matter expert through their journey. Um, to the extent that they need you. Yes. I always, I, I, the way that my metaphor that I use is you're just the, you know, when you went bowling and you had those like bumper, the bumpers <laughs> in, so you didn't like shoot a gutter ball. Um, right? I still go bowling with little kids so that <laughs> right, I yeah, can so. use those things. I will exactly. admit. Yes. <laughs> as a coach, as a coach, you're the, you're the bumper. Yes. You're just preventing people from throwing a gutter ball. They're yeah. going to throw some bad shots, right? where it only hits one pin or two pins or whatever, but that's okay. It's part of the learning process. Your job is to kind of prevent them from striking out, you know, uh, from not getting any points on the board and trying to redirect them to, to make better decisions, better shots, uh, to, to go back to that metaphor. So exactly. it sounds like you're using that. And I think we've, that's pretty cool. So we need to address the grocery thing. Yes. That's cool. And you're addressing the cooking thing via the sort of stacked behavioral change where you're introducing uh, like one um, dietary pattern thing. In this yes. case, the example we talked about was vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're combine, combining that with a cooking strategy. If you had to pick a handful of different cooking techniques that you think are vital yeah. to someone being able to prepare food for themselves, what do you think you'd come up with off the top of your head? Now, I know I didn't prep you for this. You didn't come <laughs> up with like a a long sort of thing, but, but a handful of techniques that you think that somebody could get away with, uh, as far as actually, you know, preparing most of their food for themselves and, and doing a reasonably good job of it. Yeah. So if you had a, uh, like a reasonable amount of equipment, these would probably be my, my top, I would say a grill is fantastic. So either indoor or outdoor, but being able to grill food, being able to roast things and then saute and, those are probably my three top cooking, actual cooking skills for someone who is going to learn how to feed themselves very well. Roasting, um, sauteing, and grilling. Grilling. Yeah. And there's all these other things that you could, that just aren't going to matter on a day to day level. So, you know, if you're going to braise or, you know, you're probably not going to fry much, you don't need to, you don't need to bake much initially, you know, all those things. So it's grilling, sauteing and roasting and you're set. And if you understand, if you have a few good tools and you know how to use a knife, hmm. then you're good. So that would be my other all skill right. would be a knife skill. All right. That just scares so me people, people don't know how to cut things. <laughs> yes. So before we get into the equipment, cause it's coming. Uh, all right. So we're talking about roasting, sauteing and grilling. Roasting. What do you, how do you define roasting? Because, you know, for a lot of us would just be like, 
you mean cooking. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I sadly, because you, I should have a definition, but I don't. So I would say we're aiming for something that has a fairly high heat. It's hopefully going to brown. We're going to get that caramelization on the outside of whatever we're roasting. And then we're going to cook this through. It's really beneficial for vegetables um, yep. of all kinds. So, effective, so effectively, you're just cooking it at like a higher heat. So yeah. it's not just, and uh, you get that Maillard reaction. Exactly. I was going to leave French. that word for you. Yes. It's fine. I already put it on YouTube. You don't know <laughs> what the Maillard reaction is. You can look it up. You can sound snooty and smart at parties. But effectively, Maillard was a French chemist uh, who came, who, discovered this reaction where proteins end up cross-linking. So surface proteins of foods like your chicken or the vegetables, there's proteins on the outside of the, you know, Brussels sprouts that you're roasting and uh, they will uh, cross-link and get entangled and change their form and they become these tasty bits that we call ketosamines. And uh, yeah, they give it, they give the food a more complex sort of taste that most people find pleasing but effectively roasting is just cooking with a heat source yeah in an uncovered setting uh at uncovered you want enough space so your you know air is circulating around there so that reaction can happen you don't want to create steam and you know mess it all up so yeah yeah so step so first sort of take home homework for people what vegetable are you going to choose them uh for them to roast or what thing are you going to have them roast on their own to learn how to do this uh, well, I am a lifter, so my go-to is broccoli, right? Okay. So, but you know, you can do any of anything in that family, like bro- broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, all work essentially the same way. And they want these bite-sized pieces so that you have some surface area for this uh, Maillard reaction to take place. You want that high heat. You can have it anywhere, depending on broccoli, a little bit lower, but anywhere from three seventy-five up to four twenty-five. If you're going to watch it, you cut these up. Put a little bit of olive oil on there, some salt, pepper. If you want, you can put some herbs on it, but I recommend you just start with salt and pepper first because then you actually know what the vegetables taste like. Mm-hmm. And then you stick them in the oven, in a hot oven. Uh, that's another key, right? You don't stick them in the cold oven because you want them to be hot. And then they're going to take, depending on how, here's the thing, it depends on how large you cut them, but like let's say 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and they're going to be fantastic. Um, yeah, you're yeah. going to see that browned sort of crust yeah. on most of the vegetables. And yeah, make sure you have enough space between them. Otherwise, they're just going to be soggy and yeah. warm. It's uh, disappointing. Preheat your oven. Do that. That's pro tip number one. And then uh, with the salt and pepper, uh, yeah, you could do it before. And I would recommend doing it after if you feel like when yeah. you take it out and you take a bite and you're like, eh. Not enough. That's kinda, it's kind of yeah. vanilla. More yeah. salt. <laughs> yeah. But then that's the same way that you're going to cook potatoes and sweet potatoes and butternut squash and, you know, all that stuff. So, yep. All those root veggies. All yep. right. Second one is sautéing. Now, yes. what it define sautéing for us? Just like when you're telling people to sauté, what do you mean? So this would be on the stovetop. So you have a sauté pan, which would be a larger, flatter pan, right? It's got sides, but like, let's say it's 10, 12 inches in diameter and its sides are a couple inches. It's got a handle so it can sit on your burner. You put a little bit of uh, fat, a little bit of oil in that pan. It get You heat it up to like a medium high heat uh, most of the time. Then you add your food in there and move it around in the pan. Not always, but you're moving it around so that it is cooking quickly again in a saute pan. Um, yep. it's not fried, so you don't have a ton of oil in there or butter or fat or anything like that, but you have some, um, and yep. again, it's as, pretty quick. As far as I understand it, the big difference between sauteing and frying is the amount of fat that you have in the pan, amount of oil, for example, or, or butter, whatever you're using to fry. Hopefully you're not using just butter, but, um, <laughs> dangerous. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. But, uh, if it's, if you're covering more than half the food, like as a uh, with fat, then yeah. it's frying. Yeah. And if it's less than that, it's sauteing. But yeah, in general, it's a little bit of oil at the bottom of the pan. You're using it to co- uh, to cook the the food rather quickly, and again, get that browning that yes. Maillard reaction. Uh, and so, what's the first thing you're going to have people try to sauté? 
Oh, good question. Um, and let's do something different. Let's uh, do like uh, chicken tenders. Okay. There we go. So we're going to have people slice chicken yeah. into relatively thin strips. Uh, and then you're going to preheat the pan it's so that when you drop a put a drop of water on the oil that's already in the pan, it sizzles. That yep. means it's hot enough. And then you're going to lay the chicken tenders in there away from you. You don't lay them <laughs> towards you. So you splash yourself with oil, hot oil. That's not Here's a the difference between how Jordan sautés and how Leah sautés. His fat macros are probably like two or three times more mine. So well, I'm like talking like I almost brush the pan with oil and saute sure. in that. So yeah, no I, have a little, I, have, I have a little more oil. Right. right. Uh, okay. So you do chicken. And then again, the idea is that you're getting that browning reaction on both sides yes. and you're quick, you're turning this, the chicken tenders over and over again with a set of tongs or you spatula. Yeah. And for this, like that's why I thought let's do this. Cause I would, for chicken, I would put it in the pan and I would let it sit for a couple of minutes mm-hmm. so that it actually gets that crust. Um, yep. And then I would flip it. Yeah. Yeah. You could do it either way. You can do that either way. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the if you let it sit for minutes, you're going to get uh, a thicker crust. Yes. However, if you quickly flip it one minute on one side, one minute on the other side and keep going back and forth, you get a similar similar thing. There's Look, there's people on both sides of this argument. I know. Uh, particularly when it comes to steak. Yeah. You know? Yes. I did not choose steak because that's far more contentious than ch- cooking chicken breast pieces in a yeah. pan. Yes. But it's still easy. Don't get intimidated. And right. then the, the, so we had roasting, sauteing, and then grilling. Uh, you have people, I'm going to guess because we're, this is a fitness organization. You have people grill chicken first too. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. Uh, although, I mean, I am a California girl, so if they're ready for something, I would have them grill tri-trip, trip, tri-tip for something very fantastic, right? It's just really hard to mess that up, and you can put together a pretty great meal if you grill a tri-trip tip, and I think it's really tasty with just uh, a basic crust of salt, pepper, and like garlic powder. And a good old Santa Maria tri-tip. Yeah. Grill that and you match that with some of your roasted or sauteed vegetables and potatoes and you have a meal that you're probably going to love. So. Yep. Can't yeah. go wrong with the tri-tip. Yeah. Unless you just don't grill it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Problematic. <laughs> yes. Because you do want a tri-tip that has that crust. So, you know, you need a hot grill. Yeah. But then nice. you're fine. Yeah. Yes. I do think it is. A, that, yeah. Oh, no. We haven't talked about tools. I was going to say a thermometer is really, really helpful. Sometimes yeah, people just get, don't buy one. And I'm like, why? Wait. Just get one. Yeah. Let, let's get into this. So if equipment, you want, let's say you're listening to this and you're like, all right, I'm going to take the barbell medicine cooking challenge. I'm going to learn to cook. Yeah. It's going to be better for me. It's going to be better for my family or my future family or, you know, whatever. I'll be able to impress somebody with my cooking skills. What sort of equipment do you think is necessary to get somebody started here? Again, I don't know that I have a, a list anywhere that I can pull up yet. But um, so I would say a saute pan. Uh, it's like a 12 inch saute pan or a cast iron pan. I personally use a cast iron pan often. Uh, a pot. So that you have something that you can make rice in and that kind of thing. That's handy. You need a cutting board. You need a high quality chef knife if you can afford it. Uh, and then I like a paring knife. I think if you have a chef's knife and a paring knife, those are the only two knives you need to start with. You don't need to buy a whole set. Uh, you have a cutting board. You need a spatula, probably a rubber spatula. And you need some tongs so that you can click them while your meat is cooking and then turn your meat. And if you have a baking sheet, yep, that will get you, I think, pretty pretty set. And you set a thermometer. Yes, yes, and a thermometer. Because you're I'd- probably going to be cooking a lot of meat. And it just saves you so much headache and honestly heartache when you spend money on meat. And then you're just like, no, I don't yeah. know when to stop. Or, and you know, are like, oh, I just know what it, I know the temperature by how it feels. And it's like, okay. Right. Uh, yeah. And you bu- can do the whole thing. Like we had to do that a lot in cooking school. You 
match it to the feeling of your, your you know, your hand between your finger and your thumb. But a thermometer, a digital thermometer just saves you so much trouble. You know that you've cooked it through all the way. You're not going to make yourself sick. You're not going to make anybody uncomfortable with that little raw piece in the middle. You're good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's and because you're not cooking food all day every day like a chef. Yes. You don't have to maintain that feeling of like, oh, it's part of this part of my hand or my thinar eminence. You just Exactly. I have a thermopen and I love it because it's instant and it's super accurate and uh but I understand that's outside the price range of, of many folks. Uh did you say cast iron pan? Uh that's what I use most often as my sauté pan. Yep. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. reasonable. I also like look, if you are a uh, if your buck's up, if you, you know, got a few extra doll hairs to burn, um, I think the, like the first cool kind of kitchen tech gadget thing you should get after <laughs> obtaining those, <laughs> okay, those, it took me a minute. I know. those instruments, you, well, one, you need a scale, right. a food scale, like, and people are like, what brand should I get? It's like, it doesn't matter. Nope. Look, they all, they all have some pluses they all have minuses don't go spend a ton of money on one i honestly i've st- I stopped buying batteries even for mine because it's such a pain in the butt to get them out like i've broken <laughs> oh, don't the, admit that I, I am the last two i actually broke the plastic like holder of the battery because i just my fingers are too fat and i'm just like and the thing was eight dollars so i'm like okay so i'm just gonna go get another one um thanks amazon right uh, Yes, yeah, so. I do have one that's a little more than eight dollars because I personally love a scale where the reader actually can pull out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so then yeah, I can great. put a big bowl or actually a pan on my scale. Yeah, 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 that works if you can see that. Uh, so get a scale, and the second thing I think you should do is get a uh, a sous vide because I think it's great. It is, and it it's is. like. Although I am really loving my air fryer these days. So a a sous vide is really, really good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you on that, but I just have to say that my air fryer is my fun new toy. So it's just the sous vide is so like, particularly for people who are going to be doing like food prep, like bulk food prep. So as long as if you have the Tupperware and you're going to try to like bulk make things, I think you get away. If you have access to a grill and uh, an oven, uh, then you could live a full and complete life without ever having a sous vide. But I'm telling you, sous vide is a game changer, particularly if you're eating a lot of chicken. Yes. Because that juiciness, without even really trying, that's the thing. You don't even have to try. You just like cook it a different way. And it's amazing. Yes. Every time. I don't even know. Right. So and it's like a thermometer. Bucks. I mean, it's just, it's one of those tools where you, once you start using it, you realize, oh, wow, this takes any guesswork out of this task. I set yeah. my thermometer, you know, my temperature settings. I set my timer on the sous vide and it's done. I have my app on my phone. No problem. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's like, particularly if, for other cuts of meat that you're like maybe more delicate. Oh man, it's just great. So but yeah, good set of knives, cutting board, or good chef's knife at least, and a cutting board, a uh, good pan, cast iron would be great, a spatula, baking sheet, thermometer, Tupperware, yep. scale, boom. You're ready to go cooking. Exactly. Uh, all right. Then what? You get a book? You just like get a cook cookbook and just go through it? Like, Do you ever recommend that to folks? Um, Not usually, unless they necessarily, you know... If they get kind of into it, then yes. Um, I'm super old school, so I like the joy of cooking. Um, it's a little nostalgic probably for me. Um, if they're a little bit more nerdy, <laughs> um, something like the food lab or um, what's the other one? The salt, fat. Oh, heat, acid. Yeah, from, that's uh... another newer one. That's really good at taking you through a lot of good basic skills. Um, so, um, yeah, those are those are my go tos. And then, uh, yeah, we just kind of I want people to then go from there as far as what interests them, what are their food choices, what are their likes, what do they want to learn how to do. Um, and then the internet is so great that then you can usually find what you want to kind of go down that rabbit hole. Yep. Yep. Uh, what about websites? My, my, my personal favorite is, uh, genius kitchen. Yes, that is a really good one. 
Um, I okay. So my it, I'm I'm a bon, I'm a Bon Appetit like oh yeah fan for life. So it's hard for me to that's probably my go to. I I do kind of try to steer people away from some of the larger recipe gathering sites, you know, that might pop up. Whereas I think that things like um, Serious Eats, uh, Bon Appetit, those are the two big ones because some of the others get a little bit too technical. But you look at those kind of sites, you know that most everything there is going to be pretty well vetted. Um, You've got fairly reliable commenters as well, you know. so if you're reading reviews, you're going to get some good information. These recipes are generally fairly tested. Whereas contrast that with something like the Food Network. And honestly, it's just too big. And um, people might see it and go, oh, this is probably great. But I don't find their recipes to be quite quite as curated as like Serious Eats and Bon Appetit. So, Yep. Yeah. yeah, I like that. But the most important thing you can do here is start. Yes, Acquiring skills, acquiring different sort of resources that you can use on a regular basis to step up your dietary pattern game, bro. Yes. That's the idea. Uh, hey, Leah, are you going to come out with like your own cookbook? What? The Joy of Nuance. I feel like that's a great <laughs> or like nuanced cooking or something. Or like, or like eats with three Zs. I don't know. Oh, like these oh. are all- you're so good at naming things. Yes, my nomenclature game is strong. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's the plan. In fact, uh, that's one of the pluses of this shelter in place. Guess how many recipes are being typed up? Like my A recipe. Lot. Like all of them. <laughs> typing output has uh, increased exponentially here the last week. So yeah, I am a constant food tinker, but it's been a much more concerted effort of mine to focus myself on recipes that other people can use that I can share with others as really doable ways to take what we've just been talking about for the last, you know, 45 minutes and make this a practice, make this something that they can do at home. And so, yep, working on a lot of different recipes on some big food categories, kind of dividing things up, but making them fairly quick, tasty, uh, with clear macros, because um, that's important for our common demographic, uh, scalable. So we could have a recipe that I can make for myself, but you're going to understand from the directions how you would be able to alter this recipe or meal for your macros. Um all that kind of stuff is in the works. Yes. Yep. That's again, it like we could have come out with our nutrition template a long time ago, but it's just numbers, Yeah. you know, yeah. And like sample meal plans. But if you don't give people the skills, additional skills and additional resources to help them like actually make that behavioral change, then, uh, you know, we're just, uh, we're, 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 we're spitting the breeze. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been good. All this stuff we've been talking about has really helped me to refocus what I've been doing because I'm trying to keep it focused on if people learn these skills that we've just talked about, if they have these pieces of equipment that we've talked about, how can they be very successful rather than a lot of cookbooks or cooking plans even that have you doing way too many things in a week to actually be successful. So the goal is that it's something very usable, but still good. I like that. Yeah. All right. Last question before we let you go. Can Jordan cook? Oh, the answer very truthfully. And I, I do have a, a pretty good sample size is yes. Jordan can cook. Uh, he can die. I'm probably going to say more than you. You probably just wanted me to say just that, right? But <laughs> as you might <laughs> have picked up from this podcast, when Jordan decides he wants to learn how to do something, well, he doesn't just make something new. He discovers as many details about this product, food, cooking methods, everything that you could possibly know. And so in general, it turns out really well. Yeah, I can't think of something that you've ever made that I've had that I didn't like or that didn't turn well, out. That's kind of you to say. <laughs> that's, kind, that's kind of you to say. I mean, 
the thing was like before I started cooking, literally trying to really cook, I was just doing the bro stuff, right? Where right. It's just like, all right, I can cook chicken in an oven or like a grill, which is totally fine. Right. You know, these are yeah. like basic cooking skills. I can make my way through life. I could make, you know, eggs and stuff and yes. like rice <laughs> and <laughs> potato. But the thing was, I would never want to cook for somebody and be like, this is a meal I prepared for us, not only just to like meet our basic needs, but like it's going to taste good too. Right. So, um, yeah, it was cool. It's cool to be, to learn how to do that and, you know, keep improving my knife skills and, and learning new different techniques because once I, and I'm not there yet, but I think once you have this huge like base of skills, you can really do some cool stuff in the kitchen. Yes. And I think that it just expands the things that you can make that will allow you to still adhere to your, the dietary pattern you need to, yes. but also like have a lot of different options and a lot of different things that make you not feel like you're constrained and like you're um, limited, which again, ultimately probably affects adherence. So oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's been fun. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, Leah Lutz, thank you so much for joining us on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Uh, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. As always, I've been your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Look, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and a review. I love reading those things. Really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness industry. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.